faithless. Faithless. Five times in seven verses of Malachi 2, 10 to 16, we read this term. This is the complaint that God raises with his people in this particular disputation. The unmistakable theme of this portion of scripture. The people of God are faithless. Our Father, as we come before your word this morning, we come hungry for your truth. We come willing to hear what you have to say to us. And where we find ourselves unwilling, Lord, we pray by your spirit that you might pry open the doors of our hearts and open our ears and our minds to give us a willingness. For you have the words of life, and you are true and faithful. Bless our time in your word this morning, we pray, for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. So the dictionary defines faithless as false, traitorous, not true to allegiance or duty, disloyal. The original language here hints at deceitful behavior, covering up behavior. Some translations, you may be reading the King James Version, translate the word faithless, treacherous. And all of this that I just spoke of describes what God is condemning. His people are not just experiencing a crisis of faith, as we sometimes do, not just uh, entering into one of those periods where there's doubt, but they have broken faith. Broken faith with their commitment to the Lord, and subsequently in the process have found it easy then to break faith in their commitments to others. They are faithless in their relationship to God, faithless in relationship to each other. Now we are just a few weeks into our study in Malachi, and already we're seeing this is a heavy, a heavy book with heavy messages. Now, now that we're this deep into it, I wonder if the subtitle should be Frequent Trips to the Woodshed. <laughs> and it can feel that way, and I don't, I don't want it to feel that way, but this, this is a, the reality of Malachi, that it is a series of rebukes. It is a call for reform because what has been formed isn't acceptable anymore to God. And so that's, what, that's why he approaches it the way he does, and that's why it comes across the way it, it does because that is the tenor and the tone. I wonder how Malachi's hearers would have received the messages that they were given. I doubt that Malachi's dinner invitations ramped up after he started preaching. I think maybe he found himself a bit unpopular, and that's sometimes what happens if somebody's willing to preach the word and the truth of God. Remember, we started this series and we said the oracle of Malachi or the burden of Malachi. You feel burdensome, this stuff, because it is heavy. Malachi is a heavy book with heavy messages, and guess what, friends? It's not going to get any lighter this morning, not at all, because in our text for today, God addresses a specific manifestation of the faithlessness that has him concerned. The Hebrew men were divorcing their wives to marry women from other lands. And the issue that God has with this is twofold. First, they were capriciously divorcing the wives of their youth simply because they could. And so they were disregarding the covenant of marriage. Second, they were replacing their Hebrew wives, the wives of their youth, 
with women who believed in and worshipped other gods. So they were capriciously divorcing the wives of their youth. Now, God, the Bible teaches, is a big fan of marriage. He created it. He designed it to be a fulfilling relationship of mutual helping. God knows the power of marriage. God knows the blessing of marriage, of a godly marriage. And so God loves marriage. And subsequently, God dislikes divorce. God dislikes divorce for at least a few reasons. First, I think, it, it is the breaking of a vow. So the scripture teaches us that we should let our yes be yes and our no be no. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 and 5 says, When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Second, divorce is the breaking of a covenant. Now, marriage is a covenant. It is not a contract. There's a difference between covenants and contracts. Marriage is not a business deal. Marriage is not uh, an experiment. We'll try this, and if it works out, great, and if it doesn't work out, no big deal. That's not what marriage is. Marriage is not a simple arrangement. It is a covenant. When we marry, we, we enter into covenant, a covenant relationship with our spouse. The biblical definition of a covenant is this, an enduring agreement that defines a relationship between two parties that contains solemn, binding obligations, is made under the threat of curse, and ratified by an oath. The sort of divorce that is happening in this morning's text, the unceremonious putting away of the wives of one's youth, one's partner, one's companion, is completely dismissive of this idea of covenant. And God's people breaking vows and severing Covenants is serious to God because neither of those behaviors reflect who he is and what he does. As image bearers of God, we represent him to the world. What do we know about our God? He keeps his vows. He fulfills all his commitments. And if we don't, and when we don't, we are not accurately representing him to the world. The Apostle Paul expands on this idea a bit, the meaning of marriage and what marriage is intended to image to the world in his letter to the Ephesians. So those of us living in the New Testament era, not the people of Malachi's day, but those of us living in the New Testament era now know marriage is a depiction of the gospel. In scripture, marriage is an image of the relationship between God and God's people. And Paul says it's between Jesus and his church. If marriage is a depiction of the gospel, what does it say when anyone, anyone does as the Hebrew men are doing in Malachi's day and casually rids themselves of a mate? What does that say about the gospel? A third reason I think God dislikes and discourages divorce is because of the damage that it does. The commentator Peter Adam puts it this way. He said, God hates things that harm us, and God hates actions that we do that harm others. In divorce, and some of you have experienced this firsthand, it can be heartbreaking. 
It can be devastatingly painful. It can have painful, lasting consequences for family members for years, years on end. It's such a latent subject, isn't it? Even the word, just to bring it up in the midst uh, of us today. It brings up bad memories. It brings up regrets. It brings up reminders of unresolved conflicts. It brings up times of failure in our lives when we haven't kept our promises or somebody didn't keep their promises. It's a tough, this is not a subject that anybody ever really wants to speak about. Uh, well, not, not healthy people want to speak about it anyway or preach about it because it's tough. It's hard. It's painful. You can't, you can't bring this up without having some compassion for those who have struggled with this and suffered with this. So we have, to, we have to be gracious as we handle this, and yet God's word is very clear here, isn't it? Divorce rarely provides the relief that people have convinced themselves that it will. And it often exacerbates and multiplies the problems, even when one believes that it's going to reduce them or eliminate them. And it's not something that is to be taken lightly or likened to a mere procedure as if it were the tearing up of a contract or just the termination of a business agreement when a couple marries, the Bible says they become one flesh. So they are no more two, but one. So a town clerk might issue the license, and a, a pastor may perform the ceremony, but God does the joining. That's how it works. Our passage in Malachi indicates that God has been witness to all of these marriages that are breaking down. Jesus teaches that God joins together a man and a woman in matrimony. And, and, and no person, he said, should tear them apart. And that's the imagery of divorce. You take... You take something that is melded together, two that are melded together as one, and then you just tear it apart. And you make it, try to make it into two again. And it's, it's difficult, and it's messy, and it's painful. And sometimes it's unavoidable. And we have to acknowledge that. And sometimes it's justifiable. We have to acknowledge that as well. Jesus speaks of permitting divorce when one of the spouses is unfaithful. Infidelity does not require that a couple divorce, but it allows for it in Scripture. Paul also noted that in marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, if the unbeliever leaves, the believer is free to leave the marriage. There are situations where divorce is necessary. There are situations where, scripturally speaking, divorce is allowed. Those are not the types of divorces, though, that we're dealing with in our text today. So whatever this topic does for you, I just want to encourage you, let's just focus in on what God is trying to teach from his word today. Because those are not the types of divorces we're talking about. In Malachi, the divorces that are being perpetrated by the Hebrew men are exactly the, the type that were being perpetrated in Moses' day, when because of their hardness of heart, divorce was permitted. And, and some, some today, in, in our day, are happening this way. Husbands caring very little for their brides and treating them like chattel, tossing them aside just on a whim to pursue other women, breaking faith with their wives, being faithless to their vows, faithless to their covenant obligations. That's what's happening in the time of Malachi. And at the same time that these men are being faithless to their wives, they're being faithless to God. Because instead of marrying or staying married to Hebrew women to produce children who would then be raised in a Jewish home and would learn to worship the one true God, that's the passage. What is God after? Godly offspring. 
a godly community of faith. Instead of doing that, they're being united now in marriage to women who were not from Israel, women who believed in and women who worshipped foreign gods. And God calls that an, ab an abomination. Verse 11, Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has defiled or profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. I want you to be clear here, though. The issue here is not with foreigners per se. That word comes up, but that's not the issue. This is not a problem of race. This is not a problem of ethnicity, as some might read it. God is not a racist, okay? God is not a racist. God made the races, and he's good with the races. And throughout Israel's history, non-Jewish individuals... Uh, people, people who were not of Hebrew descent were allowed into the community of faith. They could come into the community of faith if they would forsake their worship of these other gods, of these other idols. And then they would turn to worship the God of Israel. They were allowed to think of Ruth, who worshipped the gods of Moab until she aligned herself with Naomi. And she said, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. That's okay with God, and that's how it should be. So this, this is not an issue of race. This is not an issue of ethnicity. The problem, beyond the careless divorces and the fact that the Hebrew men were not, in God's eyes, free to marry anyone else, was that they had such a low regard for God that idolatry was being invited in. Idolatry was being brought into the midst of Judah. Again, not only faithless to their wives, but faithless to their fellow citizens for corrupting their community this way with idol worship, unacceptable worship, obviously faithless to God by seeking after and accommodating this other God worship in their land, in their homes, we might surmise even in their own temple. So, is this how to treat one's wife? Is this how to treat one's brothers and sisters? Is this how to treat a great king, the one who said, you shall have no other gods before me? It most certainly is not. And it is the reason that the people of Judah find themselves stuck in this cycle of futility. They are not blessed by God. They are not living a life of blessing. That is the judgment. So as we approach prophecy, we want to know first what is the transgression, and that's clear from this text. The transgression is faithlessness. What is the judgment? The judgment is that God here is withholding his blessing on their lives. And they have to be super careful around, around this type of thinking because not everyone who is materially blessed is experiencing the favor of God. And not everyone who is materially challenged, let's say, is, is necessarily under the disfavor of God. So there isn't, like we want there to be, some strict formulaic one-for-one -one ratio of obedience that if I do this, God is obligated to do that. If I follow the rules, then he's going to give me A, B, C, and D. That's really not how it works. At the same time, the scripture shows us again and again how willing God is to grant favor to those who will follow his ways. And it teaches us also that he will withhold his favor from those who forsake his ways. These are the covenant promises that we went over early on in Deuteronomy 28. If you follow me and obey, God says, I will bless you. And if you don't follow me and you disobey, I will curse you. So this is what we're seeing come to be in the time of Malachi. 
Consider the words spoken by the prophet Haggai. Let's go to another minor prophet, Haggai chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. He says this, these people who are experiencing a similar cycle of futility, things are not going well for them. So listen to what he says. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Do you ever feel like that at the end of the week? Like, my wallet must have a hole in it. Yeah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take, take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So what's going on here in this day and age is that the rebuilding of the temple has been stalled because the people are paying more attention to their own lives than they are to giving honor and glory to God and doing what they were brought back to do. And God is saying, go get the wood, go up into the hills, get, get after this. You look for much, he said. Behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Catch that. God's saying that. I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. I blew it away. I'm not going to bless you if you're not following me. Sometimes hard circumstances are natural consequences of poor choices. Sometimes they are God's judgment to illuminate those poor choices. Think that through, would you? Sometimes hard circumstances are just natural consequences of poor choices. Sometimes they are God's judgment to illuminate those poor choices. So I want to say, friend, if you're here this morning, you're just barely keeping your head above water amidst all the cares of life, have you considered that God might be trying to get your attention? That God might be allowing a certain futility in your life, a certain dead-endedness of things, in order to get your attention? If you are in that two steps forward, one step back mode, or worse, which sometimes happens, you just can't get traction, you can't get ahead, or, or you keep slipping back into these old, old ruts, these besetting sins, might it be that the Lord is not going to bless you until you get right with him? That was the case of the people in Haggai's day who cared more for their own houses than they did for the house of the Lord. In Malachi's day, who cared more for their personal happiness than they did for the glory of God. The poor living conditions in Judah, they're still a Persian province. They're still under foreign rule. They are not powerful politically. They're not powerful militarily. They're not prosperous materially. Those poor living conditions brought out another pattern of behavior that the Lord found offenses, offensive in, in chapter 2, verse 13. The second thing you do, God says, have you ever been in those sorts of uh, arguments with somebody? And they say, and by the way, so... <laughs> So here we got God saying, look, you're faithless, you're faithless, you're doing this awful thing. And by the way, there's something else I want to bring up while I'm at it. Verse 13, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. How do they know that God is not regarding their offering or accepting it? They know it because they're living a life of futility. They are not being blessed. 
So the people of Judah then are naturally understandably sorrowful. But understand this too. Theirs is a worldly sorrow, not a godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, in the words of Philip Hughes, is not sorrow because of the heinousness of sin as rebellion against God, but sorrow because of the painful and unwelcome consequences of sin. Self itself is the central point. You see, the people feel bad, but they feel bad because of what they believe God is not doing that they think he should. Not because they have any awareness of what they are doing that they shouldn't. John McKay says they were disturbed by the earthly blessings they did not have, but unaware of the true cause. And the true cause was their alienation from God. Sorry for the consequence of sin, not sorry for the sin itself. And so they wept and they wailed and they covered the altar with tears and God is offended. There's another term for that emotional expression. The emotional expressions of the people that we're seeing here, it's called self-pity. It's pretty unattractive, isn't it? We humans are prone to self-pity. We are prone to self-pity when, when our suffering doesn't make sense to us. When we see no earthly good in our suffering and no heavenly kindness behind it. Self-pity is, if you think about it, if you push it, self-pity is itself an expression of, an evidence of the problem God is alleging among his people right here. The absence of faith. When I allow myself to plumb the depths of feeling sorry for me, I am truly me-focused. I'm looking at my circumstances, and I think that they are harsh, and I think that they are unnecessary, and I feel surely that I am able to judge my situation accurately and determine what ought and what ought not to be. And I long for immediate relief. I want to come out from under this suffering. I want to come out from under this pain. I care more about my comfort than I do about the eternal weight of glory or anything good that can be accomplished by God through my suffering and my struggling. I care more for my pleasure than I do pleasing the Lord. That's self-pity. And the cure for this common, we might say it's a universal malady, well, anybody here not experienced times of self-pity? I guess we could say that, eh? And I don't want to pick on anybody I shouldn't be picking on. Only one. Great. <laughs> the cure for this common, universal malady, this, this thing we can fall into from time to time, feeling sorry for ourselves, is, is faith. It's trusting in the goodness of God. It's trusting in the sovereignty of God. It's knowing that God and not a turnaround of my situation is my true and only hope. God is my hope, not my circumstances. Not if this stuff could just line up the way that I think it ought to line up and then I'll be all good. No, I just need to trust God, have faith in God. So we know the transgression. The transgression is faithlessness. And we know the judgment that is being mired in that cycle of futility, not having the favor of God in our lives. Now we ask ourselves, how might we be guilty of the same offense? 
How might we in, in 2023 be guilty of a, of a similar sin, the sin of faithlessness? And I could answer that in a number of ways, but you know what? I want to leave that to you to say. Where does faithlessness show its ugly head most in your life? In what areas are you most tempted not to trust the Lord? In what areas are you most tempted to disobey the clear word of Scripture? So in the context of our passage today, we see a few possible issues. Maybe it is in how you regard marriage. Maybe it is in the choosing of a spouse. Maybe in how you regard divorce. Maybe in the way that you worship. Maybe in how you suffer. Maybe in the raising of godly offspring. These are places for some to start and think through. And yet, given the breadth and the diversity of this congregation, there are so many other possibilities. I have to leave this to you. Where might you be guilty of the sin of faithlessness? Where are you most tempted as a believer to break faith? You don't want to conform to Scripture in this area of your life. You, you want to act like a functional atheist in this area of your life. Because the big idea of this passage is a simple one. It is the title of this morning's message. Right? Don't be faithless. That's, that's what Malachi is saying. And that brings us to a fourth consideration when we study prophecy. How does Jesus fit into this thing? How does Jesus fulfill or how does Jesus satisfy the requirement that is, being, that is laid out there or, or that which is being broken or not fulfilled or satisfied? Well, the last time we saw how Jesus was a better worshiper and how Jesus was a better priest. So today when we consider the faithfulness of Jesus Christ as compared to the faithlessness of the Hebrew men, we see that Jesus is the better husband. Scripture describes Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, as the bridegroom. The church is the bride. And Jesus is the faithful bridegroom. Jesus is the faithful husband. In their commentary on Malachi, Ian Dugwood and Matthew Harmon write this, Yet even when we are faithless, the Lord is still faithful. We are often covenant breakers, but he's never unfaithful to his promises to us. He cares for us so much that even after we have provided more than enough reasons for him to send us away many times over, in the end, he will not let us go. Instead, he offers himself for our salvation in profoundly costly ways. Where the husbands in Malachi's day are leaving their wives, Jesus promises what? Never leave. And where the husbands in Malachi's day were forsaking their wives, Jesus promises what? To never forsake. And where the husbands are willing to leave their wives with nothing, Jesus chooses to give everything. And where the husbands were willing to kick their wives out of their homes, Jesus has gone where? To prepare a home for us. In some, where the husbands were faithless, Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful to pursue us 
to love us. He is faithful to forgive us. He is faithful to save us. And he is faithful to give us the gift of eternal life. Again, from Dugwin and Harmon, anyone who comes to Christ by faith is united to him in a marriage that God himself has joined together. A union that no human being or even a spiritual force from the pit of hell can separate. Our marriages may fail. We may even be the guilty party in that marriage breakdown. We may fail by committing spiritual adultery in a thousand different ways with a thousand different lovers, but God will not fail. What he has joined together with Christ, no one can separate. Jesus is the better husband. And lastly for today, as we wrap up this study of Malachi 2, with a simple question, what changes can we make in light of what we are learning? One way to approach that in all of your scripture reading is to ask yourself, what does the author, obviously we know that scripture is written by the Holy Spirit through the agency of a human author, what does the author want his hearers to think or feel or do? And when we come to this particular passage in Malachi, the answer is fairly easy. God wants us to have faith. And he wants us to be a faithful people. So we start there when we start to think, what kind of changes do I need to make? We can evaluate where we're tempted to be faithless and address that and, and, and work on that in order to be full of faith, in order not to be faithless. God wants us to have faith. God wants us to be faithful people. This passage gives us actually a little bit of counsel about how we can do that. It tells us that we should guard our spirits and that we can remember where we came from and why we're here. See, faithfulness starts with this practical counsel of guarding our spirit. That might be a change that we have to make. We might have to be a little bit more vigilant about who or what we allow to influence our spirit, our inner person or our heart, however you want to put that. Why do we have to guard that? Well, what does the scripture say? The spirit is willing, but what? Oh, you know it. The flesh is weak. So, so we have this conflict going, going on, and if we're not careful, we could indulge the flesh more than we indulge the spirit. So we have to guard the spirit. We have to guard our spirit. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance. Like, don't be lazy about this, but be diligent about it and understand what's at stake, for from it flow the springs of life. That's what the Proverbs tell us. Keep your heart with all vigilance, because from it flow the springs of life. And brothers and sisters, our hearts will not be springs of life. They will be corrupting springs if we allow them to be polluted with worldly wisdom. If we allow the influence of the world to take root in there. So we have to guard the source. We have to guard our spirit. So we will be faithful to God. A second possible change that we could make in response to this passage to make us more faithful is, is again, that just idea of remembering where we came from and why we're here, or I could put it this way, to shore up our relationship with God or to solidify our awareness of God. Remember I talked last week, a couple weeks ago, I don't know, about the, just living in the context of God. 
And these people have lost that, and many people lose that, and we can actually lose that from time to time. So our, our text begins with a few questions. Have we not all one Father? And the answer is, yes, we do have one Father. Oh, yes, that's right. Has not one God created us? Again, the answer, yes, that's right. We have a Father. We have a God who has made us, who has put us here. And then the question, why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? It is easy to be faithless toward God if we lose sight of, of the fact that we were made by him, we were made to reflect him, we are made to fulfill his purposes for his glory. And it's easy to be faithless towards others if we do not see them as created in God's image or, or our, our common father. Long story short, it's easy to do what is wrong when we distance ourselves from what is right, whether we do that physically or emotionally. So ratcheting up our practice of the presence of God, tending to our relationship with him, that's what's going to lend itself to faith. That's what's going to help us to be faithful people to display the obedient behavior that God desires and that blesses the world and that in turn through God will bless us. It's what will please him. If we lose sight of or lose connection with God, it's easy to be faithless to others when we're being faithless to God. But if we can press in and abide in Christ, as we're told in John 15, and love God and, and nurture that relationship, then it's going to be easier to be faithful to others. And more God, because God is faithful. So bottom line here as we wrap up Malachi 2, keep your promises. Honor your vows. Display the steadfast love of God with which you are loved. Do not be faithless. Our Father, we praise you and thank you for the promise of your word. Sometimes it doesn't come with a gentle reminder. Sometimes it comes in ways that feel harsh or sound harsh. This is what we're encountering here in the book of Malachi. You are so faithful to us, God, speaking to us in ways that we have the best chance of grasping and understanding the message that you have for us. Our Father, we pray that we would be faithful people, that you would, by your Spirit, uh, examine our hearts and our lives and help us to see those places where we're tempted to be faithless. We know without faith it's impossible to please you. We want to please you. Help us to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.